Today we're going to talk about everything you need to know. Because there's a few things we all need to know. Paul's going to remind us about those things. So I was reading the New York Times Magazine, dated April 14th, when I came across a very interesting article. It was called An Ethical Theory of Relativity by Chuck Klosterman. This couple asked a question about how, to, how should they respond ethically to two different financial situations. The first one, what if someone makes a mistake and charges you less than you know you should pay? What if that person is someone you know? Not necessarily someone you know in a deep personal way, but you just know who they are and they know who, who you are. What should you do in that situation? Or do you act differently if the entity making the financial error is a large corporation and your money is just a little dot on their radar? There's a $40 mistake on your Cox cable bill. There's a $25 mistake on your, your cell phone bill. Do you call the 800 number? Do you get on hold for 30 minutes? Do you talk to somebody who says, I really am not authorized to handle a problem like that? Or do you just kind of, do you just let it go? What do you do in a situation of a financial discrepancy? So they put this out before Chuck Klosterman. He writes, yet the angle I keep returning to is a symbolic question about virtue. How do you want to frame the machinations of your life? Which is a fancy word just to, to say, how do you want to frame the way you think? How do you want to frame the way you act all the time? Do you live for yourself or for other people? If your intent is to live life externally, your behavior need not be fixed. In other words, it's one way if you get too much change at 7-Eleven. It's another way if AT&T charges you less than they should have charged you. And you can decide according to however you want to decide. But if your intent is to live ethically for yourself, if your personal actions dictate how you view your own character, your behavior should be the same. Then he makes this interesting turn. Now, I suppose it's my job to tell you which one of these is the better option. In other words, to live externally and just say, well, I'm going to let this one go. Well, I could have, you know, given back a dollar and change, but I didn't. Well, I'm not going to worry about the AT&T bill. Or to look at everything as a matter of character, these, these two choices. Now, I suppose it's my job to tell you which one of these is the better option. But I can't do that because I don't know the answer, he writes. And then he asks the question, is living for yourself better or worse than living for other people? It seems like a central question about the experience of being alive. It seems like a central question about the experience of being alive. Is living for yourself better or worse than living for other people? So a very, very bright person, a very intelligent person, a person who writes an article that tries to answer, writes a column, a page about answering people's naughty questions about life and the decisions they have to make. He says, I don't know. You're kind of on your own. Here's what it looks like. You got to just figure it out. Flip a coin. Look at yourself. Make a decision. I can't tell you. 
And that's one of the big problems with the world in which we live. We live in a world that asks that question all the time. A major American city goes bankrupt. A jury decision rips into the national psyche. Sporting events consume our time and energy as we seek brief respite from the demands of being human. You know what the, the respite actually is? A Major League Baseball game, in the three hours of a Major League Baseball game, there are 17 actual minutes of action. Doesn't get any better for football. In an NFL game, there are actually 10 minutes of action. But for those 10 minutes and for those 17 minutes, we, we get this little brief respite from this world that has all these swirling questions and all these issues and how do I decide about my life and how, how do I decide if I should be living more to take care of myself or I should be giving my life away to others. The world doesn't want to tell you. They, they can't give you an answer because they're not based upon a system that says there is an answer. In the middle of the first century, they knew their share of questions too. In the middle of the first century, people were, were buffeted by political agendas. People's minds were overwhelmed by philosophical questions. And people had a lot more time to, to think about it because they didn't have all the distractions that we have today. But I don't necessarily think they thought about it more than we think about it. Yet in the middle of a, of a time of push and pull and stress and pain and trying to ponder the mysteries of life. A man named Paul shows up and he says, I will explain it to you. I can tell you the answer to whether you should live externally and everything shifts and change, changes all the time or whether you should live out of a basis of character that's based on the truth and on something that is going to last forever. He says, I know the answer. I can tell you. You can have power. You can have more power, but you have to understand the essence of power, the parameters of power, how power plays itself out in everyday life. And so in this chapter that we're looking at today, we looked at Philemon last week, this short letter that he wrote, very deeply personal letter. In this chapter, you're going to hear the same heart of the very personal Paul as he talks to this church in Corinth. And yet you're going to hear him dealing with life in a, a slightly different way. He's not just talking to one man. He's talking to a whole group of people. And it's a very, very interesting passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I have chosen the message translation because I think it just has, has that feel of of relevance to the way we live our lives today. Paul is about to give us four power boundaries that are all we need to know. And now a personal but most urgent matter, Paul writes. I write in the gentle but firm spirit of Christ. I hear that I'm being painted as a cringing and wishy-washy when uh, as cringing and wishy-washy when I'm with you, but harsh and demanding when at a safe distance writing letters. So 
There was, there was a, a grapevine back then, just as there's a, a grapevine today. And, and he got the word that they, they felt like every time he wrote a letter, he sort of pounded on them. But then when he showed up in person, he was kind of meek and cringing and wishy-washy. He says, I, I, I know all this. Please, he says, please, don't force me to take a hard line when I'm present with you. Don't think that I'll hesitate a single minute to stand up to those who say I'm an unprincipled opportunist. In other words, you know, Paul's there because he's, he's getting something out of this. Paul likes the spotlight. Paul likes to, to be the big leader guy. Don't think that I'll hesitate a single minute to stand up to those who say I'm an unprincipled opportunist then they'll have to eat their words. This is where the Bible teaches the principle of, you want a piece of me? You want a piece of me? Come on, come on. Let's go outside. Let's take this, we'll take this outside right now. This is what I call the power boundary of you will hear me out. You can talk about this and you can talk about that, but when we get together, you will hear me out. And it doesn't necessarily have to be aggressive. Sometimes I think it needs to be forceful. And sometimes forcefulness is misinterpreted for aggression. That's the way it was in our early married life. I would speak loudly. Gail would say, why are you yelling? I would say, I'm not yelling. I'm just talking. That's how everybody in my family talks. Why are you yelling? Not yelling, I'm talking. Good day and God bless you, I think. <laughs> you feel those moments when you're getting yourself in trouble. Okay, so um, the power boundary of you will hear me out means there are times and places when you deserve a hearing. There are times and places when you deserve a moment, a minute, five minutes, 20 minutes in a board meeting or in a, uh, in a family meeting or driving in the car or wherever. There are times when, when you deserve to be heard. This is the power boundary of, of you will hear me out. It can be done nicely. It can be done, I need you to hear me say this. It can be done nicely with a sense of, of dignity. Uh, I would like five minutes just to explain what I think has been misinterpreted, but this is a biblical principle of power, the power boundary of you will hear me out. I need, I, I need that, and that is afforded to me by the, the rules of community, the rules of, of what is cordial and what is right. And so this is, sometimes we look at the Bible and we're looking for things that are overly spiritual. You have to look at it the way Paul looked at it. There's reality. There's people saying stuff they shouldn't say. There's people thinking things they shouldn't think. And you got to wade into that stuff. That's part of reality, defining reality. Don't over-spiritualize everything. I told this story in the, in the first service from a long time ago. I've mentioned it here before, but I was, I was a... Uh, a boys' brigade leader in a Baptist church once, and, and we were teaching the boys about how to pray and how to be Christian, but also on how to do practical things that you need to know how to do, how to change the tire on a, on a car when you get a flat tire, how to do other things. So we're in the, in the section 
of the book, the manual, that said today we're going to learn about straight screwdrivers and Phillips head screwdrivers. So I said this would be great with these young kids because they don't really know about that. So there was a picture of a straight screwdriver. I showed it to the kid. I said, now what is that? Kid goes, Jesus. I said, no, no, no. He said, what is, what is that? He goes, saved. I said, no, 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 no. What is it? He said, the Bible. I said, no, it's a straight screwdriver. <laughs> he was with his brother. I gave his brother the Phillips head screwdriver picture to look at. I said, now what is that? He said, Jesus. I said, no, no, what is it? He says, saved. I said, no, what is it? the Bible. You know, they were so forced into thinking everything was either Jesus saved or the Bible that they couldn't tell the difference between two screwdrivers. See, the Bible doesn't want you to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. The Bible wants you to, to deal with reality. And this is a great chapter with Paul just dealing with reality. You will hear me out. No matter what everybody is saying, you will hear me out. The world is unprincipled, he continues. It's dog eat dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair. But we don't live or fight our battles that way. We never have, never have, and never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation but they are for demolishing that entirely massive, that entire massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. If you, if you sit with that for a minute and read it, it could have been written yesterday or last week. The world doesn't fight fair, but we don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have and never will. This is Paul's power boundary of God's principles of truth always trump loose thinking. The world is going to change and shift and, and the rules of the game seem to be changing all the time and what's right and what we're moving towards saying is right is shifting. If you go back to the 50s, we thought in a certain way, we lived in a certain way. Some of it was according to God's truth. Some of it wasn't, granted. But in each age, there seems to be a shift, a change, a shift, a move. And most of it seems to be based upon humanistic thought or the way we think it should be. And it doesn't it doesn't always take into consideration what the truth of this book offers. What Paul is writing says, this book will never, will never let you down. This book will always give you all the information you need to live a life of meaning and purpose and hope and integrity. You can build your life on this stuff fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. He says, there's a lot of loose thoughts out there, a lot of loose thinking. There's a lot of emotion that kind of makes you go up and down and feel this way and that way. There's, there are impulses that aren't going to take you to the right place. You're, you're going to regret that you went there. So what we have to do is grab that, put it into the structure of a life shaped by Christ. Truth always trumps loose thinking. And he's very, very clear about that. And it's the same today as it was 
in Paul's time. He continues. You stare and stare at the obvious, but you can't see the forest for the trees. If you're looking for a clear example of someone on Christ's side, why do you so quickly cut me out? Why do you just shut me down? Believe me, I am quite sure of my standing with Christ. You may think I overstate the authority he gave me, but I'm not backing off. Every bit of my commitment is for the purpose of building you up, after all, not tearing you down. Paul says, look, you want to you criticize me? My whole deal here is I'm trying to help you have better outcomes. I'm trying to help you have stronger relationships. I'm trying to give you a future and a hope. I'm trying to teach you what is right and what will last forever, not what's expedient and lasts for a moment. And what's this talk about me bullying you with my letters? His letters are brawny and potent, but in person he's a weakling and mumbles when he talks. So somebody was saying that. Somebody was talking like that, and it just got all the way back to Paul. Such talk won't survive scrutiny. It's baloney. It's, it's somebody's opinion because they feel powerless. What we write when away, we do when present. I am who I am, who I am, who I am. If I'm here, this is me. If I'm away, that's me. If I write to you, it's me. If I'm talking to you in person, that's me. We're the exact same people, absent or present in letter or in person. This is the power boundary of knowing who you are and knowing why you do what you do. It's so important to know exactly who you are, to know what you do, why you do what you do, what your gifts are, what your gifts are not, what you've been called to do, the work that God's assigned to you, the direction that he's pointed your life. I met a, a caseworker yesterday at the Judeo-Christian Outreach Center. Her name is Nikki, and she was telling about her life before she became a caseworker and before her life was totally dedicated to helping other people. She said she was homeless. She was in an abusive domestic relationship. She was a single parent. You know, her life was a, a wreck. Her life was a mess. You know, it started when she moved here from New Jersey, not knowing anybody at all in the state of Virginia. She moved here because she saw an ad on TV that said, Virginia is for lovers. And she said, that sounds like me. Is that a good reason to move anywhere? You know, she was living according to feelings, loose thinking, emotions, impulses, and, and her life became a train wreck until she met the person Paul is always writing about, until she met Jesus Christ. And she started to, to put everything in her thought life into that structure of Christ, everything, all her impulses had to be subdued, and she kept working on that. She went into some training programs and some rehab programs, and, and, and her life today is like a light. It's like that city set on a hill for everybody to see. Her life has been changed, transformed by the love and grace of God in Jesus Christ. And, and she said, all I do now is I get up, and I say, God, whatever you want, Jesus, whatever you want to do with me, you do with me. And she just lives every single day 
helping and helping and helping and, and coaching and coaching and coaching and trying to get people to move toward what Paul is writing about, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. But this power boundary of knowing who you are, knowing why you do what you do, is so important because it saves you the, the grief of having to listen to a whole bunch of voices telling you this is who you should be and this is what you should do. And maybe you should try this and maybe you should, should you know, when people try to put their agenda on you, you can say, no, I know who I am and I know why I do what I do. And God's not asking you to do that. God's asked me to do this. This is an amazing chapter. And then it, it, we're going to go to the end of the chapter. We're not barging in on the rightful work of others, interfering with their ministries, demanding a place in the sun with them. He says, we're not bothering anybody else and what they're doing and what God's asked them to do. What we're hoping, what we're hoping for is that as your lives grow in faith, you'll play a part within our expanding work and we'll all still be within the limits God sets as we proclaim the message in countries beyond Corinth. In other words, guys, it's not just about what's happening here. It's about what's happening all over the world. God sent his son for the whole world and we get to be a part of that. Yes, we're working here, but it's bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. And we'll all still be within the limits God sets. God sets the limits and the boundaries of where we're supposed to be and go and, and do as we proclaim the message, the message of Jesus Christ in countries beyond Corinth. But we have no intention of moving in on what others have done and taking credit for it. If God's moving other people in other ways and doing other things, that's great. That's not our job to worry about. What you say about yourself means nothing in God's work, Paul concludes here in this chapter. What you say about yourself means nothing in God's work. It's what God says about you that makes the difference. It's not what you think about yourself, what you're doing. It's God looking at you and God saying, there's more potential there. I got to get you to, to see more and more of who I made you and more and more of who you can be. This is Paul setting the power boundaries of faith and humility. Faith and humility, always knowing that each and every day begins and ends with, oh God, this is who I am. This is who you made me. This is the life you gave me. And if you want me to serve here or you want me to serve there, I serve at your pleasure. I serve at your will. And, and I want to know that I am fulfilling the call that you've put upon my life. And each and every one of us can do that each and every day. It's just great stuff here. James Thurber once wrote, all men should strive to learn before they die what they are running from and to and why. What was Paul doing? He was explaining to people what to run from, what to run to, and the reasons why. Paul is setting leadership boundaries as he creates a structure for the dissemination of the greatest message 
ever told the message that God came into the world. God showed up, and that changes everything. It changed it all 2,000 years ago. It changes it all today. God showed up and said, here I am, and I love you, and you're created in my image, and I can't give you all the answers to everything right now about life and death and eternity, but I'll give you enough answers so that you can, you can hold on to a faith that changes your life and changes the world. The power boundaries of faith and humility are so huge. The key words in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians are fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. There was a time in my life when you know, I just lived according to the way I felt. I lived according to my emotions, and I, I lived according to impulses and, and to thoughts that were swirling around. My life was never fulfilling then. My life was very disrupting then. And I somehow knew that the ground my feet were on was, was shaking and shifting all the time. But when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, boom, there was a foundation and as much as I stomped on it, it was strong and, and firm. And I began to build on that. And God began to build into me. And, and that's, that's all we need to know. Because that's what happens one day at a time. And over a period of time, it's called your life. Chuck Klosterman wrote, Is living for yourself better or worse than living for other people? I don't know the answer. It seems like a central question about the experience of being alive. The world will not give you the answer. The world will keep you guessing. It'll say, do this, go there, watch that, experience this, try everything out, see how you feel. But it won't tell you all you need to know. I know a little bit about doing whatever it takes to to get to all you need to know, to have all the, the right moves in your life. I know that because I went to water country the other day with my grandchildren. Um, you know, I decided I wasn't going to water country. I, was, I made a decision. I'm not going. Just don't want to do that. Do not want to be with thousands of people in bathing suits who shouldn't be in bathing suits. I don't want to see it. I don't want to go there. It's probably a sin. I don't want to do it. So we get to Williamsburg, and Sophia looks at me and says, Grandpa, are you going to water country? And I love Sophia. And I said, no, I don't have my bathing suit, which was the key to the whole thing, not to have a bathing suit. I can't go like this. No, I don't have my bathing suit. All of a sudden, I hear a voice behind me. Oh, I brought your bathing suit. <laughs> Gail! What? So I had to go to water country. So I go to water country, uh, and 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 you know we go on the uh, what was there um, the the hubba hubba highway that was interesting, hubba hubba highway, uh, but it was very very sort of basic meltdown. Now meltdown was kind of weird. You climb a hundred feet in the air and you come down on this tube thing, uh, but 
It was Aquazoid that sent me over the edge. Uh, you climb like a thousand feet into the air, you come down an 850 foot you know, tube in the dark, tunnels dropping you 20 feet per second, uh, and, and, and you, a certain part of your body gets beat to heck on the way down. It just does. And then you hit at the end, poof, you know, and there's like 16-year-old kids standing there looking at you, you know, and, and I, I roll out of the tube, I roll out of the tube, and I'm crawling on my hands and knees toward the steps. And this 16-year-old girl looks at me, and she goes, are you okay, sir? I looked up, I said, I'm okay. She said, are you sure, sir? Yeah. You know, which is, I lied. Okay, so, so I, I get out. But I know what it takes to, like, engage and to do. And it means you've got to do more than you think you can do. It means you've got to climb higher than you think you can think. It means there's going to be bumps and things on the way down. But Paul is saying, with all of that, it's the only way to live. It's the only way it works. It's the only way you go. So how do we get to all you need to know? Okay, all you need to know is you are responsible to create transformational moments wherever you live, work, and play. Creating transformational moments is the key, and that's what Paul was doing. He was weaving a, a logic, a biblical logic, a spiritually mature logic to create a transformational moment for the people at Corinth. That's what Paul was doing he, when he was setting leadership boundaries, and that's what works in life today. Transformational moments are the most important moments of your life. Think about a time when something shifted inside. That was a transformational moment. Think of a time you just didn't sing Amazing Grace, you lived Amazing Grace in a moment. That was it. Think of a time you finally understood God's will in your life. Think of a time when beauty and creativity and truth all came together in a celebration of great joy. Think of getting a puppy and realizing you've just made a commitment to a furry, little, loving, crazy thing that you have to walk every day. It's a transformational moment. Think about a, a new job, a mission trip, a baby. So how do you create transformational moments? In chapter three of Boundaries for Leaders, Henry Cloud states emphatically that by doing three things, you can create transformational moments because God made your brain that way. And when I matched up what he was talking about, it matched up perfectly to what Paul was talking about. All you need to know, three things. Number one, attention all the time. Attention to what really matters all the time. Not part of the time, not in the morning and skip the afternoon, not take a day off Wednesday. Attention to what really matters all the time. In his book, Ordering Your Private World, Gordon MacDonald wrote about 35 years ago, I must know my rhythms of maximum effectiveness. I must have thoughtful criteria for choosing how to best use my time. I manage time and command it best when I budget it far in advance. That's attention to what really matters. Not just letting life throw you all over the place, but you know the rhythms of your maximum effectiveness. Attention to what really matters all the time. Number two, inhibiting those things that are distracting, irrelevant, or destructive actions in your life that threaten to tear you down. In a post by Scott Williams at the Global Leadership Summit site, 
He wrote about 20 things you need to stop doing right now. Let me give you seven. Stop settling for second best. Stop making excuses. Stop tippy-toeing on that line of sin. And you know where that line is, and you know when you're tippy-toeing on it, and you know nothing good is going to happen if you cross over that line. Stop worrying about what people think. Stop being quiet when you know you're supposed to speak up. Stop focusing on others. Look in the mirror. You can make a career out of criticizing everybody else and never look in the mirror. Stop giving the least to those that matter the most. Inhibit what are distracting, irrelevant, or destructive actions. Attention to what really matters. And the third thing that, in combination with the other two, creates transforming moments is remember what is always true. There's a great theme in the Bible of remembering. Remember what God did. Remember the Red Sea. Remember we came out of Egypt. Remember the loaves and the fishes. Remember, remember, remember. Remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ that changed the whole world. Remember what is always true. Love is always true. Grace has standards. Jesus gave his life for you. God is for you. Growing is up to you wanting to grow. You always get two things, what you create and what you allow. Jesus has a plan for using your life to change the world. Jesus also has a plan for using your life to change you. Creating transformational moments is all you need to know because if you create them and live them, you are really alive. You want to feel really alive? Then create transformational moments. Attend to what really matters. Inhibit the bad stuff. Remember what is always true. Do what Paul said to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He attended to what really mattered. He inhibited the irrelevant. He wasn't afraid to say, hey, in your face, guys. He remembered what is always true. In 1977, a song was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for 10 weeks. It received the Grammy for the best song in 1977. That song was also covered by Whitney Houston later on and by Lee Ann Rimes even later on. I like the song. It was by Debbie Boone, You Light Up My Life, and if you think about it, it'll start rolling in your head if you're over 55. <laughs> if you're 25, you're going, what are you talking about? <laughs> but that song had a great lyric. You light up my life. You give me hope to carry on. It's almost biblical. But then there's a lie, a bald-faced lie that comes at the end of the song. And I like the song, but I, I can't deal with this lie. It says, it can't be wrong if it feels so right. It's a lie. It's a lie. Paul is explaining it's a lie. Everything that builds into a transformational moment has to say that's a lie. Fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. That's life. That's the truth. 
Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. Is living for yourself better or worse than living for other people? It seems like a central question about the experience of being alive. Well, it seems that way because it is. Just ask a guy named Paul. It's all you really ever need to know. Power, that's how you get more. Dear Heavenly Father, thanks for teaching us for allowing us to fit every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of a life that you give us in Christ. Help us to do that. Help us to do that today. Help us to do that tomorrow and each day that comes. And in that doing of doings, create a life of meaning and hope. Create a life that shines like a city set on a hill. Let us do this together. Let us be your church accomplishing great things for you, having a power that only comes from you, Father. We give our lives to you again today. In Jesus' name.